But I think what is most critical is that we understand when coping is what's required and when we really need to pause and build resilience. And th those are vastly different things that I think have gotten really confused in the last couple of years. If you're using a filter that's not serving you, you get to pick another one. You don't have, you're not stuck with the filters that you were raised with. You can pick a different one. But in reality, you're actually spending about half your time on another job. And the other job is managing image and perception at work. Over the course of my life and career, I've discovered the power of consciously investing in mindset and personal development. It has been a true game changer for me in my personal and professional life. And I'm extremely excited that you decided to join us today to take one step forward in your own life. Most of my breakthroughs have come from one-on-one -on -one conversations. We created this show to bring you those unfiltered conversations each and every week. Good morning and welcome to the Connected Mindset Live. I'm your host, Greg Tomchik. I woke up this morning feeling extremely thankful and with a lot of joy to be able to host this show, to have these conversations with leaders, with folks who are making a change in their world that's impacting others, and getting to have these conversations to hopefully ask some questions that are relevant to your life and some of the things that you're working through so that you, you leave this show a little bit better off. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe to the Connected Mindset Live, I'm dropping a link into the chat here. With each subscriber, we actually just reached 1,000 subscribers uh, earlier this week. With each subscriber, we're able to get better guests on, and that brings a better conversation to you each week. So please go ahead and do that, and we greatly appreciate it. We have a guest for you today, Ms. Jennifer Eggers, that's going to dive into a lot of topics that are relevant to many of us on the call today, on the, on the line. But before we dive in, uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Um, Jennifer, so what mission are you on and why? Wow. Um, well, I work with leaders and organizations that are going through disruption. And so the mission is really to improve their capacity to adapt. So at the heart of it, I work with champions, um, people that really want to be the best, the absolute best at what they do. And many are in the face of rapid disruptive change. So I would say most of my clients are C-level leaders, mostly Fortune 500 companies, although certainly um, many, many companies aspiring to be there and, and even some not-for-profits. But, you know, really, we're, we're changing lives, really helping them to be better leaders and helping them and their organizations to, um, to get better at dealing with disruption. And that's just become such a constant these days. Absolutely. I love the connection between our business lives and our personal lives because they do impact each other. And a lot of people talk about this term of work-life balance and trying to keep <laughs> everything separate in a way that it doesn't bleed into the other. And I think when you adopt a skill in one area, it goes into the other area, whether you like it or not. 
Um, and that's something we both probably seen from the athletic side. Um, but what does disruption mean to, to you and to some of the clients that you help work through it? Does it mean after the fact, before the fact? How do you look at disruption today? You know, it's funny. That's even changed in the last, you know, five years. When I wrote the book about, you know, resilience, the I think the subtitle even refers to the preparation, you know, we help people prepare before they need it. And then I've spent the last four years trying to figure out, okay, no, we have to build it in the midst of disruption. We have to figure it out. So, um, you know, I, I think ideally resilience is about the preparation that we do before the disruption hits. But that said, I mean, when you are in the thick of disruption, you can't just, you can't just wash your hands of it, right? We have to find ways of coping and find ways of getting through. So I think it depends on the degree of the disruption as to whether, you know, we employ coping strategies or we push the pause button and really do the intentional work to build resilience. But I think what is most critical is that we understand when coping is what's required and when we really need to pause and build resilience. And th those are vastly different things that I think have gotten really confused in the last couple of years. Um, in, in one way, I, I feel like many people beat themselves up because they're in the thick of disruption. They're going through, you know, I just think of in, even with, you know, I, I hate to almost use the pandemic as an example because it's a little overused at this point. But when I think about what doctors and nurses and people were dealing with in hospitals, right, you, you can't think about being resilient when, you know, you're in the middle of a, an 80 hour week with, you know, 12 hour shifts and you've got, you know, people dying all around you. And then that's an extreme example, obviously, but, and it happens, I mean, disruption happens in business too, but in those moments, I think so many people are beating themselves up because I'm not resilient enough, or I should be resilient. You know, I should be able to handle it. Well, you know, my, my thing is stop shooting all over yourself. Like this is, this is um, a time to cope and it needs to be safe and it needs to be okay to say, I just need to cope right now. I'm in survival mode. You know, I, I gotta, I gotta like do my breathing exercises and my mindfulness and my meditation, whatever it is, take some time off. But none of those things are gonna make you resilient. They're all gonna help you get through the disruption. But what we need to do and we need to be more um, focused on is finding those moments when we can pause and really doing that intentional work um, to build resilience. And that that can be individually or or that can be as a team. Um, but it, it really is, you know, th there's some real intentional work that can be done, but it can't be done when your hair's on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And that's where we learn, I think, on the other side. But during it, it's so blurry of what's going on in our heads that we don't know how to get out or where, you know, which direction to go. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one of the things about disruption, and we see this in the cybersecurity industry, most people don't call us until they're in a cyber attack or in the yep. thick of it. Um, is that the same in your world where people don't reach out until something bad happens and then they've <laughs> had the light bulb moment of now I need to start? We get only. both. <laughs> yeah, we, we get both. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, we work with a lot of leaders that, you know, maybe their boss figured out, hey, this person needs to start an innovation center or this person starting a whole new center of excellence or building a new function or, you know, maybe they're a new leader, new to the organization. And sometimes often, you know, a leader or an HR person will recognize, hey, this person's going to be facing a lot this year and they may need some help. And the, I mean, those are ideal. Those are absolutely ideal. Then we can get in there. 
Um, and, and what differentiates us from, I think most coaches is, is I go really deep. I mean, we don't ask if I've done something 11 times, I'm not going to ask how you feel and ask you to reflect on it. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to help you. I'm going to dive in and help you figure it out. So those are the ones that I love that are, you know, that are really ideal, but there are certainly, you know, I'm going to say about 40% of these situations are like the holy shit moment where am I allowed to say that? Yeah, um, yeah. where we're, you know, we're in trouble mm-hmm. and what, and what do I do now? And, you know, I think those, in those moments, like we have to take stock of really what can you do now, right? There's certainly things that we can do to sort of pause and, um, and cope and make things easier, but you're building the plane at that point while you're flying it. And we can't, we can't take off a wing to restructure the strut. Like we got, we got to figure out how to make it work. And so we do a lot of that too. Yeah. I love that. What brought you to that moment of saying, I need to help people get through disruption. It may go all the way back, you know, early in your career, but where did that start to resonate in your own mind? to start working through that, you know, within yourself? Such a great question. Um, So, and there's a story, of course, behind that. So um, about, gosh, I guess it was around maybe 2010-ish. I was, I would do a lot of leadership workshops and I work with uh, my, you know, my history is organizational development. I do a lot of org restructuring and I do a lot of leadership workshops. Once we restructure, we got to get the the right skills in place. So the leadership workshops kind of came into that. So I was I was teaching a workshop for um, a CEO and his direct reports, and I was quoting all these great things and and uh, concepts that I that I learned. And I, I'm really really good at taking complex concepts from you know big researchers and making them applicable. And I was really proud of that. And so I was telling them about this research from Harvard and how they could use it. And we took a break, and the CEO came into the break room and he said to me, Jennifer, I don't care what they taught at Harvard. He said, I hired you to know what you know. He says, would you just tell us that? And I I was so shocked. And I mean, at the time I had worked with thousands of companies, you know, and I I certainly had some knowledge, but that wasn't in my program anywhere. You know, I was still teaching these, these, you know, really great concepts. And so I went home that night and I sent an email to 10 people that know me really, really well. And I said, what's the story that only I can tell? And every single one of 10 people responded and said, Jennifer, you're nothing if not resilient. Like we thought you would have, you know, fallen apart when this happened, or we thought you would have fallen apart when that happened. We can't believe you keep coming back. And every time I came back, it was like a new venture. It was more successful. Things were going well, but it was hard, but I was good at it. So I thought, well, all right, I'm obviously resilient, but why, you know, what made me resilient? And so, you know, if you go through a bunch of muck, there's a school of thought that says you just keep going through muck and you get the battle scars to prove it and you get more resilient. But what's interesting is that I knew people that went through very, very similar muck that I went through at the same time. And one of them is on public assistance today. You know, not everybody goes through the muck and becomes resilient. Some people do and some people don't, which then prompted the question, well, what did I do? that allowed me to do to come out on the other side over and over again. So I started thinking about what I had done and I had done some really intentional preparation 
that at the time I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm becoming resilient, but I had done some really intentional personal growth work that paved the way so that what I learned was that the muck didn't make me resilient. It was the intentional preparation that did. And that is what I've attempted to capture in the book. And Cindy Barlow, my co-author, um, she's the one that taught a lot of this when I went through it the first time. And so I went back and kind of pulled her in and said, you know, hey, how can we scale this and how can we, how can we teach it? And many of these concepts were originally, uh, they started out as a personal growth program and then they became a leadership workshop and then they became an emotional intelligence workshop. But the thing about emotional intelligence is you can't send someone to emotional intelligence class because that's basically saying you're not emotionally intelligent. Who wants to hear that? So I took a lot of all of this stuff and repackaged it and wrote a framework that really described what I did to build resilience. And then we started testing it. And it was the results were incredible. I, I remember the first time I did the full-blown program for a, a corporate group of high potentials, we put 15 people through it in a company of probably, it was a private equity held company. They probably had 250 people there. I called the CEO, and this is always a really scary phone call. I called him about, you know, three months after the program, and I said, which is like long enough to forget, right? And I said, what's changed? You know, and then I was like, oh, I shouldn't have asked that question. And, you know, my fear was he was going to say nothing. Well, he said, Jennifer, everything's changed. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, because 15 people went through the program and they weren't the top leaders. This was just the high potentials kind of one level down the, from the leadership team. He said, our entire company has more courage today because 15 people did that work. And I, I was so blown away. Um, you know, and I have a talk that goes with it and that gets, you know, usually gets great reviews. And, and so it really, when I, when I realized the power of this, um, it became my life's work. You know, and then and I build it. I, 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 like I said, I mean, I, I spend most of my time coaching today and, and some of it is around resilience. Some of it is around just, you know, how do I set up a project or how do I, you know, muddle through this really big business challenge. But at the end of the day, it's all disruption. And it's the mindset that people have that gets them through that. It's not the tactics, it's the mindset. Yeah, I think that story specifically shows how connected companies are at every level. Um, one of the things that stuck out when I initially read your book, and this is something I, I heard, but I never really understood, was the filters that you view the world through. When you when you change your filter, oh, the, yeah. thing, the things you look at change and you treat them differently. So these leaders probably started to look at the world a little mm -hmm. bit differently, which changed how they treated their team which changed how that team looked at them. And then everything, you know, is connected and changes from there. Oh yeah. Um, we put a huge emphasis on filters. Knowing your filters is enormous. Mm -hmm. And and for those of you that haven't heard that concept, if you think about the old, um, you know, if you remember the old cameras with the long lenses, you know, they had these little discs that you stuck on and there might be a red one or a blue one and they had all these different filters. So the idea is that you view the world through you know, call it a, a glass window or a lens or something. And those filters are shaped by your attitudes, your beliefs, the way you were raised, your experiences, all of that stuff. And most of them, 95% of them are stored in our unconscious. 
But the degree to which we can actually understand what our filters are and really do that sort of internal thinking and then realize that if you're using a filter that's not serving you, you get to pick another one. You don't have, you're not stuck with the filters that you were raised with. You can pick a different one. So it's kind of how fast can you recognize the filters and then choose another one if that one's not as effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do we, and I think a lot of people are in this position, especially when they're trying to do something against the grain, is a lot of people around you haven't done that. So they say, oh, that's you know difficult. And then it just, it gets it in that, in your mind so ingrained that you, you put yourself in a victim mindset where it's, I have this filter, I was raised this way. Right. My parents did this to me. My business partner did this to me. How do you see people shock that in their system and kind of like detox it, I guess you could say. A, <laughs> detox is a good word. I mean, and this speaks to, I wanna just go back to something you said earlier. I mean, this speaks to exactly how who you are as a person shapes who you are as a leader. And that's what we're really trying to find out, you know, is how do you get to at the root of it? Who, who are you as a person and how is that shaping you? So then the next question is, is it serving you? You know, how's it working for you? If something's not working in your life or your business or your ability to lead or you're not able to lead your team in a certain way, then we got to ask, what is it that, what are you doing or what is what is it in your filters, frankly, that isn't serving you? And I think sometimes that's the big epiphany is that, you know, you don't realize necessarily how this is occurring. I mean, the example I like to use, and it's it's not my example, but it, it's an example that um, I think we used in the book is that, you know, if, if a woman was raised in a family with a very domineering father and, you know, he 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 dominated the conversation at the dinner table, you know, it's kind of his way or the highway. And you and that's what you learned. Right. That's your mindset around dealing with men. Well, all of a sudden you're in a boardroom with 15 powerful men. If you don't think that filter is going to shape the way you occur to them, you're highly mistaken, right? So then you have to say, okay, well, if that filter's not serving me, then how do I make a different choice of what are the filters I'm going to use in that situation? Not easy. This is this is wind in your face, um, you know, hair on fire, really introspective, tough work to figure this stuff out. But if you've got some ineffective blockage, figuring it out will change your life. It'll change your personal life. It'll change your business life. There's no question. Yeah, this is so critical because oftentimes in business, we're meant to be the business person and to not, to almost hide who we are as a person to some extent we're supposed to stuff it down and not bring our emotions to the to the game or to the field or to the boardroom um but that's where a lot of the issues happen because they're not you know they're not they're not even recognizing it for one and then yeah. two they're stuffing it down which makes things blow up or people have intentions that aren't conducive to where the company's headed because they don't have the ability to talk about it or recognize it. Um, when did you see that blend start to take place? Like in the, in the corporate model of <laughs> this person may need to address something personally 
to, in order to bring themselves, you know, their best self to the business world? Well, it's everybody. So mm -hmm. first of all, I mean, it's not, it's not unique, right? But mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. There's a there's a book by Bob Keegan, who is a, a researcher at the Harvard School of Education, and he wrote a book called An Everyone Culture. And one of the things I love in this book is that he talks about how everyone and his research really does say everyone, although I don't like to use superlatives, but he he talks about how every, we're all doing two jobs at work. So you come to work to do the job that you're paid to do. You have all these issues you have to deal with. But in reality, you're actually spending about half your time on another job. And the other job is managing image and perception at work. So if you think about the cost of that and companies spending, and he tries to quantify it, you know, companies are spending billions of dollars paying people to manage image and perception at work. But here's the, here's the catch is that when you need resilience and, you know, maybe you haven't gone through the school of hard knocks or maybe you have and you didn't, you're one of those people that didn't become resilient. But if you, Resilience is like an extra tank, right? When you go driving in the desert, you bring an extra gas tank so that if you run out of gas, you've got it, you know, you've got it there. Resilience is the same thing. You're carrying around this extra tank of energy. So the idea is you've got a full tank of discretionary energy so that when you're focused on these issues, this disruption that you've got to deal with, when you hit the bottom of, you know, your typical, like what you're willing to expend on a day, you've got this tank that you can tap into when you need it and you've got a little extra discretionary energy. Okay. So if we are not aware of our filters and we are trying to manage image and perception at work, we're trying to be someone else, then that's costing us energy that could be spent on the real issue, on the things that we're trying to do and the things that we need to do to stay resilient. It's sucking the, the energy out of your tank. So now all of a sudden you're burned out because you don't have any more discretionary energy, but look at the energy you've wasted. Now, I will say some of who we really are inside and this notion of authenticity and all of that, I mean, some of that's probably better served for your comic routine or your therapist or whatever. We can't, we can't be all of who we are all the time, right? This requires a bit of judgment. But if we can figure out how to really be authentic in a way that works for others, so that we're not spending all our time trying to be someone we're not, then all of a sudden you get like half your energy back. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's the, that's the really amazing part. So if we can, if we're aware of those filters and we know what's holding us back, then all of a sudden we can choose things that don't require so much energy to deliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Energy management. And I, I love how you mentioned that quantification of managing image and perception. It's unbelievable. Like, <laughs> that is something I haven't, I actually haven't heard people talk about in a tangible way. They know people are doing it, but they're almost ignoring it and saying, oh, they're, they're working. Like they're, they're going towards the mission or objective. Maybe that's getting them closer to it, but it's a, it's not on the balance sheet. So it's not. Yeah. And you know, the, it's funny, there's a lot of things that aren't on the balance sheet, yeah. right? We call those in the book, we call those derailers of resilience. Yeah. But I look at it as you're either 100% focused on the real issue, whatever that is, or you're not. And so anything that's taking you away from the real issue is taking energy out of the tank and making you less resilient. It's derailing your ability to be effective. So things like 
I'm on a special diet and I got to worry about where's my next, you know, where am I going to find food, gluten-free food, or where am I going to find something to eat that, you know, they're having a potluck and is any, am I going to be able to eat anything at lunch, right? Anything that is taking away, um, I got to deal with corporate politics. I've got to deal with some kind of power struggle based on, you know, religion, race, whatever, you know, whatever your, um, you know, ERG group of choice is. But if I have to, if I have to deal with some kind of power struggle, or I've got to deal with politics, or I'm being attacked in some way, or not being treated equally, or whatever it is, all that stuff takes away from your ability to be resilient. And it just, it just takes energy that you no longer have. And so we as, we as individuals have a tremendous amount of control over how we spend our energy. But we as lead, and but the more exciting part for me is we as leaders in corporations have a lot of control and we can create environments that allow people to be their best and really use the energy that they have, you know, in the most efficient way if we create environments that are conducive to that. I love that. Yeah, the, the conscious creation of environments is. Most of the time, we just thought that the collective created it. And if it was toxic, you get rid of people. And and then uh, with that conscious creation and thinking it's preparing before somebody's like, this is a toxic environment. I need to leave. Yeah. Having that environment where they can come to you and say, here's why it's toxic. Here's potentially how we can improve it. Um, a lot of the conversations I have from the cybersecurity side are with people who understand kind of financials and math. So I always came up with these equations and I want to <laughs> dive a little bit into the frameworks that you've, you've developed and, and rolled out. Um, but it was, it's a simple equation of like assets minus liabilities equal X for them. Like that could be resilience. That could be equity. That mm -hmm. could be um, a great culture and just trying to focus on the things that increase you know, your likelihood towards your goal versus decrease and like trying to keep it very simple for them from the security side, but from the culture aspect. Um, what have you seen in frameworks that you've developed? Like that's how I've tried to explain it to people in equations because a lot of these people get math, but yeah. Um, what, what type of frameworks have you developed and what have you seen work from implementing those? Sure. I mean, I think the, the biggest one is our resilience framework. It's the, the leadership resilience framework, and it can be used in a variety of ways. I mean, one is, you know, that you can actually use it as a model for how to build resilience. So the book is really an instruction manual for how and the, it, it literally walks you through all the things an individual needs to do to become more resilient. All the thought processes, all the exercises are there. And then part two is, well, how do I take that then and apply it to my team? And the cool thing is that because the characteristics of resilient individuals are the same as resilient organizations, we can take the same framework. And once we build it individually, then we can turn around and apply it to the team. And I think that's where in the example I gave you, the company that went through it, I mean, that was something we really did was um, we built a resilience framework for their organization in that program. And so they were able, once they kind of learned it individually, then they were able to say, all right, well, what's the framework and what they found was that we can use it as a checklist and you can literally go through the checklist and say, okay, well, here are the areas where we're pretty good. And here are the areas where, you know, we're maybe not so good and we need a little more work. So, you know, in its simplest form, the, the framework um, first invites you to adopt a filter um, that life is hard. And so the idea is that 
if we run around thinking everything's going to be easy, then it, it, we're our, we don't meet our expectations, right? And we're constantly bumping up all these rough things, right? So whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. That's the thing about filters. It doesn't matter if they're true. What matters is if they're effective. So the thing is when we start thinking, okay, life is hard, then all of a sudden it ceases to be hard. And this is, this is documented, you know, in just about every major religion has some tenant around, you know, in this world, you'll have troubles or, you know, Buddha has one too. Most, um, Islam has one. I mean, there's all these, they, every religion has some, some version of life is hard, but the idea is um, if we cease to expect things to be easy, then they get easier. It, it's counterintuitive, but it works. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't buy it, I would challenge you to try it for a day and, you know, just try it on. I mean, you can take it off when you don't like it. Yeah. But um, so then once you have that filtered, then there's this resilience framework that basically says resilience is a function of our mindset and the choices that we make. And so mindset is a function of how authentic we are and our attitude, the attitude we choose in a situation. Choices we make are a function of our purpose And that doesn't have to be your purpose in life. It could be just your purpose in any given situation. But knowing what your purpose is in the situation you're in really allows you to make choices that are aligned with what we call your definition of success. So choices are a function of purpose and definition of success. And then underlying that are your core beliefs. So individually, and I'm probably one of the few that talks about core beliefs in a corporate workshop, um, whether you like it or not, you know, faith is in the workplace, you know, it, it's there. And so pe- everybody has one, everybody has core beliefs. Um, some people know what they are and some people really haven't thought about it. Some people avoid this topic like the plague, but at the end of the day, when you need to stand up, when things get tough, it is really hard if you don't know what you're standing on. And so I certainly can share, you know, testament to, my faith and how that's helped me, but I don't, it doesn't matter to me what your faith is. What matters to me is that you know what it is. Mm-hmm. So I don't care if it's your lucky rabbit's foot, Jesus, the Buddha, whatever, it doesn't matter. What matters is you absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt what is true for you. And that may not be true for me, but whatever's true for you, you have to know what that is. And then it's got to be solid enough that when you need to stand up, when things get tough, you can stand on it. Um, my, I believe in God, right? So the way I look at that is when God is all I is all I have, He's all I need. Whatever you believe, when it's all you've got, it better be all you need. And it's number one most important thing about building resilience is know what that is. And you you just have to do the work. And there's instructions in the book. There's a hundred you know questions to think about to help you figure out what that means for you. And we don't espouse any particular, you know, religion or, or faith doctrine. What we do espouse is you've got to know, you've got to do the work to figure it out. And that's probably the first and most important thing besides filters that you can do to really build your resilience. It's amazing you mentioned that and how conscious it was, because that's how I, when I worked through the book, you know, filters were that thing that really resonated. And then, you know, core beliefs and knowing what those are and answering those hard questions. Mm-hmm. So that you have the core beliefs that have a solid foundation. And I look at those today as my like my standards of living or, you know, do yeah. you see a difference between core beliefs and standards? 
Not really. I mean, I think we use different words to describe different things, right? And that's how this trans the model it translates from individual resilience to organizational resilience. You know, in an organization, talking about core beliefs feels a little goofy. So, you know, but organizations have values, they have principles, some have mission statements, some have a vision. Um, those things are all core beliefs. They all form the basis of core beliefs. So whether to you that's your faith, your values, your, um, you know, your standards, whatever that is, you know, sometimes it's a list of like where I'm going to draw the line. You know, I've got a list in my office of 10 things I will not do. You know, in business, I started it the day I incorporated the business. It hasn't changed. Here are 10 things I will not do. And, you know, those are, um, those are the important things that you stand on that you have, you have to know what those are. So it doesn't really matter to me what you call them, but it's the, it's the, basis that's the same. Now, I do think answering those questions will get you to more than just standards. Mm -hmm. I think you've got to understand a little bit more about what do you believe about a higher power? What do you believe about, you know, how the flowers grow? You know, there's things like that, that I think, I think you got to go deeper than that. But um, the deeper you go, the, the more, here's why. The deeper you go, the easier it will be to build that definition of success. Because that definition of success needs to be so unconscious ingrained in you that 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 can form the basis of your filters when you when you're not even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's what often people say. That's just my unconscious. Like that's something I can't control. It's already wired in me. And oh no, one of <laughs> one of the things out of the book that really connected to me that allowed me to take myself to. Greg 2.0 or 3.0, wherever I was at at the time, was it allowed me to ask questions I think I've wanted to ask myself, but didn't have the words to ask. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it, and it also caused me to realize that those levels are what I enjoy most, that second and third, fourth level of, it's not just the surface level questions of like, how are you today? It's like, well, what do you think about, you know, how the flowers grow? And I started to ask those to people around me and they were like, what, what, what do you mean? Like, nobody's, nobody's <laughs> asked me that before. And people are like, oh, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> Imagine doing that with a group of corporate finance yeah. guys. Like, <laughs> I read, that's where we got the testimonial from that mm -hmm. said, Jennifer turns everything you know about corporate training upside yeah. down because they're all sitting there going, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but at the end of the day, they start to realize that these are, these are important things because how, you know, who you are as a person drives who you are as a leader. It drives how your team perceives you. It drives how you act when you're in a crisis. Um, and, the, you know, when I think about coaching, we've got to go deep into who we are as people or we'll never get to who you are as a leader. I, I mean, you, you just can't, you can't make changes. I can't just suddenly go, oh, I'm going to be somebody else today. Right now, I do say every situation is a chance to be who you really are. But if you're going to, if you're expected in that split second moment when you have to make a decision to choose who that is and decide how you're going to be in that moment, you better, those are split second decisions. You better get pretty, pretty intuitive. You got to get into your unconscious who you really want to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, 
yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot there for people <laughs> to, to chew on. <laughs> that, that's where I like to live. And, um, you know, you just, until you get to that level and have some of those light bulb moments and see them play out in the environment, right? It all becomes that, oh, this is just me doing the hard internal work. Until you bring that out into the world and put yeah. it into action, then you're like, holy cow, this is extremely impactful for me. Everybody I have a conversation with, everybody those people have a conversation with. And that's kind of the the connectedness that we like to talk about on the show. So yeah. I'm glad we I'm glad we got to that level. Um, a little bit about the Rapid OD framework. I came across that. I dove in. Um, <laughs> what what it is, why it came about. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that framework and what it looks sure. like? Sure. Yeah. So Rapid OD was born of a need. Um, I when I left when I left uh, my one of my well second to last corporate role. I guess we had restructured our business uh, five times in eight months. And I was seeing this constant restructuring and restructuring and restructuring. And of course, I did that in my early consulting days as well. Um, but what I noticed is it wasn't effective, right? We, we would restructure and then, you know, we would forget something. And, oh, whoops, well, we broke this process when we redesigned it because people weren't in the room that did the process. And we didn't even, the leaders didn't even know what happened. And so we kept breaking things. And then, oh, we have to fix it. And so we'd restructure again. And you know, it was just a ton of churn, a ton of disruption. You know, there's nothing like going home in December, not knowing if you have a job in January. And that used to happen all the time. Um, I think for five years at Bank of America, it happened to me. And I was like, you know, this just isn't serving the business. These businesses are stalling because they can never get any traction. There has to be a better way to do this. So I looked back, you know, er, my early, probably showing my age here, but my early IT days where, um, you know, in IT consulting, they had the RAD, you know, rap, rapid application design, right? Where this was the first revolutionary at the time. Now it's ancient. But the idea was you bring the business people and the IT people in a room and we'd actually talk about what we needed, what the requirements were and what was possible. So those that was, you know, revolutionary at the time. But when we did org design, we were still restructuring with the HR person and the, the CEO in the back closet somewhere with the door closed. And then you'd, then you'd, you'd get this new structure and you'd run around trying to sell it. You know, oh, let's get buy-in, let's get buy-in. Well, I got news for you. If you're trying to sell something, it's probably not the right solution. So what I, what we did, what I did first of all, was hired a team to figure this thing out. And we created a process that was very inclusive. Um, the people doing the work were actually at the table, which was unheard of at the time. I mean, oh my God, what are we going to do? All these people in the room, you know, they all have a personal agenda. No one's going to be honest. Everybody's going to want their little fiefdom. You know, there were all these objections. But at the end of the day, we created a way where if you got, this was just magical. If you got the group, and it's so simple, it's silly. If you got the group to agree on a shared agenda. So, what do we want the new organization to do? What are the criteria? What are the standards? What are the guidelines? Like when we get a new org structure, we're gonna bounce it up against this list and we're gonna see if it meets all the criteria. And if it doesn't, then we're gonna figure out how to make it work. We're gonna change it, but we can't have a structure that doesn't do this list of X number of things, right? So if you got them to agree on that first, and we have a series of exercises we put people through to get there, then all of a sudden, all the personal agendas and I want my 10 direct reports and all of this goes away 
because you can't have your 10 direct reports if it doesn't, if the structure doesn't work with the criteria. So if you get all the people in the room to align around the criteria, and then you get them to put their heads together and figure out how can we create something that not only works today, but will work as the organization grows and ebbs and flows without just bolting things on hither and yon, right? We want something that's actually scalable and sustainable. And then what we find is that if we can come up with something that everyone can live with, that's almost the gold standard. Because if everybody's happy, it's the wrong solution. We've got to have something that um, that everyone can live with and that really, and I don't mean everyone's happy, but usually what happens is someone's really happy and someone's not. If that happens, it's the wrong solution. It's got to be something everyone can make it work. And then we have a whole set of implementation tools that goes with that. So that was kind of the, the impetus for RapidOD. So then what we figured out was that, you know, we did that for a couple of years and it was working really well, but we figured out there was this whole thing around organization strategy. And how do we make sure that we got this great structure, but how do I know that it drives strategy? So what, what RapidOD has evolved over the years, what it's become is a holistic soup, soup to nuts, end to end <laughs> process where we, we actually start with an organization strategy so we make sure we got that solidified. Then we figure out what are the capabilities, organizational capabilities, what does the organization need to be able to do to drive that strategy? Now we look at those capabilities. We assess them and we say, okay, which of those, we got them nailed. What are some other ones that, you know, these are strategic advantage. We've got to have these capabilities to drive our strategy, but we're not doing so well today. Well, all of a sudden, those those are a little higher heat, right? Those we got to deal with. Now, there are also capabilities that, you know, payroll, for example. We can optimize the heck out of payroll, but we haven't driven a dime of revenue. So there are some capabilities that are like ticket to entry. We could probably outsource those. We kind of categorize these and assess them, figure out what to do with them. And then, and then we think about structure. Um, we also, at that point, you can think about talent. Who needs to own a capability to make sure that it's being optimized in the best way possible? We cannot, it's sort of like once you get the capabilities, then we go in three directions. Talent, structure, investments. So then we'll build an investment roadmap that says, all right, we've got, if we've got capability gaps that need to be closed, what kind of projects do we have going on that can close those gaps? Um, or do we need to add some things that can close those gaps? Lots of other ways to think about capability gaps, but just in a short time. Um, so RapidOD is sort of, it, it, it started as this org design process, and it really became this very holistic way to design and govern an organization. I love it. I love the design, design and govern, because a lot of people think those are way on the other sides of the world it's like let's just design it and then we'll govern it after it's built and and ready it, to go it, it doesn't so it doesn't work that way because the thing is once we have a capability model it's so what we've learned is that a capability model is a phenomenal way to align everybody around what does the organization need to be able to do and where are our gaps and what the, here's the magical thing about capability models is once everyone is aligned around where the gaps are and we build an investment roadmap, then we have no infighting. We have not, you know, all of this, so many leadership teams have all this sort of jockeying for position and fighting for resources. 
Well, if we all agree as a leadership team that we've got these five core capabilities and these two have gaps and everything we do, we, we want to make the investments that are going to drive our strategy the farthest, the fastest. So if we align around that, there's no more infighting. We know exactly what we're spending money on. We know exactly why. We know exactly what we're going to focus on. And we deliver our strategy as efficiently and effectively as possible. And so that becomes the governance model is how do we, you know, keep reassessing these capabilities and make sure that we're really able to drive the strategy. And this we've got to have the structure that's aligned in the best way possible to drive those capabilities as efficiently and effectively as possible. So it's sort of this nested set, you know, very linear process that companies can use. And, it, you know, it starts with design, but if you don't govern towards it, it, it loses its power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes so much tangible sense. Such a co complex topic that a lot of companies continue to get to and they butt against the wall continuously. Right. Absolutely. How how do we how do you guys get it to companies earlier on so that they design by default? Is it is that possible Ooh. to design super early, or you have to kind of wait until it's at a X point in the company to? It never happens that way. Like yeah. I wish it did. I mean, I you know it's funny. Like we used to talk about design for Six Sigma and like mm -hmm. you know designing it right the first time. Somehow it never works that way. You know, it, it, it's always like we're, we're in a crisis. Things aren't going well. We're not meeting our strategy. Can you come in and help? And usually, um, usually it's either sometimes it's we don't know. We're building our new strategy. We don't know our strategy. And I'll come in at that point. That's actually kind of fun. But because then we can start with strategy and we kind of walk through the whole process. But I would say more often it's we've got a strategy, but we're not we're not achieving it. And, you know, we're not quite sure why. So I, I had one of those calls a couple of weeks ago and I was like, well, you know, have you thought about the capabilities that the organization has to deliver to drive the strategy? Well, no, we just go, you know, we just do stuff. Well, mm -hmm. how do you know you're doing the right stuff? You know, how do you know that your next investment is actually going to give you, make some progress on where you need to get, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, well, if you don't know, then, you know, this is a perfect time to do this work. We also get the calls that say, well, we want to restructure. I have a new leader. And of course, every new leader wants to move boxes around on an org chart. You know, and the first thing I'll say is, well, what's your criteria? You know, why are we moving boxes around? Let, let's back up and do criteria. Well, how do we get to criteria? Well, what are we basing it on? You got to link to strategy somewhere. So capabilities become that linkage to strategy, which honestly, it sells itself. Like once a company, it's, it's not something we actively, um, you know, go out and, and companies approach, tend to approach us about org design and, and it comes out. But once a company's used it somewhere, we usually will get another call, you know, at some point they want to do another part of the company or yeah. they want to put the whole company through it or whatever. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things you have to keep up to date. Not that you have to do a complete restructure, but you have to keep it up to date quarterly, annually to you revisit have to assess, it. You have to assess the capabilities because we make progress on capabilities and you always want to know where your gaps are because that's where you want to put your investment and your resource focus. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, do, I don't know how to do prioritization <laughs> without, you have to prioritize around something like, okay, we can prioritize around, you know, most companies will look at risk and they look at, you know, um, 
hopefully they look at some kind of strategic contribution, but how do you know? Unless you have some linkage that you can say, this is driving X and that's driving, you know, the strategic pillar number four or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it makes, it's, it's extremely tangible to me and it's got me organizationally designing or redesigning my company as we're working <laughs> through this. Um, where would you say, you know, a lot of people in this time of the year, it's kind of like, let's replan, let's think about our strategy. And I think a lot of that is broken, um, unless they have a good coach like you guys, or they have somebody walking them through it. They're just kind of maybe going through the EOS system and doing their different meetings. And they're, they're like talking through things. They have a bunch of items that they walk away with. Then the new year starts and it's like back to business. We'll visit that at the end of Q1 to see if, how we matched up and it's not intentional. So where would you recommend people start? You know, maybe this is their first strategy session. Maybe it's just not working. Uh, yeah. Keep the ball rolling in the right direction. Well, I mean, I'll tell you where we start when we, we facilitate a lot of strategic planning sessions. And I, I think the first place that I start, first of all, I want to leverage the knowledge that's in the organization. You know, sometimes you can bring in, you know, a big think tank to give you some sense of, you know, where you might compete in the market. I find that those end up usually in a binder in a sh on a shelf somewhere. I mean, I can't tell you how many companies I've worked for with, you know, the the Mercers and the McKinsey binders of full of strategy that have never been implemented. And so what I like to do is get the people together, you know, and a pretty expanded group, like, you know, definitely a senior team, maybe even one level down, but get, get a, a pretty, you know, 20 so people in a room. And let's really talk about what do we want to, you got to figure out a time horizon. So most companies will say, okay, two to three years, whatever. What do we want to be? You know, what do we want? Who do we want to be? What do we want to be in the market? How do we want to be perceived? Um, and we have a whole exercise that takes people through this, but it's basically, we've got to design our future state. And, um, and, and once we, once we figure out, you know, the future state, then it becomes, all right, well, if you, and this is the exercise that I like to do is if you stand in the future and let's imagine that you're now in your future state, right? You've achieved all you ever dreamed. What does it feel like? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What's being written about you? All, you know, really, really put yourself in that mindset and then turn around and look back and what had to happen right before you got there. And then right before that, and by thinking of these things backwards, it takes people out of this linear, um, you know, kind of rote mechanical thinking that we're so, you know, I'm going to say we're good at it because that's what we're taught. But I want to take you a little off balance. Um, there's a guy by the name of Dan Thurman that talks about off balance on purpose. And I want to put people a little off balance on purpose to think backwards and think about what did they really achieve? And then if we think about that, and, and these get fun, you know, these get, these conversations are really fun. I, I had... Um, you know, I had one one team that said, oh, we want to have Lamborghinis for our company cars, you know, and it was like, OK, but, you know, there's not all this is going to stick when you're all done. But but I want you to be creative and get out of the box. And, and then I want to translate that to tactics. You know, that's where the real work begins is to say, all right, now, you know, we kind of know what we want, but how do we get there? And we're going to build those tactics now, you know, from today forward, we're going to chunk them by, you know, either quarter or year or whatever. Uh, whatever your time horizon is, and then that becomes your strategy. Um, and then once you know, once we have strategy, then we can then we can start talking about capabilities. Now there are big companies out there. You know, you can have um, some of the big, the really big consulting firms come in and do this, and they'll take 
you know, 12, 18 months, 12 consultants in a conference room. And, you know, they'll, they'll take up space in your, wander your hallways and talk to your boss about you. And, you know, you'll have this in a year for a couple million dollars. This is a project we, this is a, a something that we do typically in, in two to three days. So this is a very quick, um, the way we do it, we involve enough people. We do not put consultants in a conference room. This is your leadership team. It's your fingerprints. We want, I don't have the answer. And any consultant that does, doesn't like, trust me, I've been there. I've worked for those companies. Um, I've worked with them. I've worked for them. I've hired them. They don't have the answer either. Right. You, you probably know more, uh, at your leadership table than you'll ever need to know. And our job is to get that out of you. So we put people in a room and we do these things in, you know, a couple of days and, and, and so a couple of day sessions and then maybe a couple of weeks of work, but it's months, not years. Um, and I might even argue it's weeks depending on the client and depending on, you know, their speed and their appetite for getting in a room and working on it. But the beauty of it is that by having that wrestling match with the leadership, with the leadership team, they, they really own it when they walk out. So, what will happen when another firm does this is that they'll give you the binder and then you go sell it. You know, you now I got to socialize it and I got to spend six months convincing everybody to buy in. When we do it there, you, the leaders are already bought in. They built it. What's not to, there's nothing to, there's nothing to buy. It's already theirs. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so I think we've, we've figured out, you know, and this is kind of years of consulting experience on my part, both in and out of consulting firms, but really figuring out what works and how do we get stuff to be sticky that they will want to use. And I think that's, you know, half the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I love how you mentioned the wrestling match. And then one of the things that resonates with me at a deep level is the ability to put our ego aside. And I did this a few years back, obviously ego still comes up, but as a, person that wants to see other people do well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a therapist, as a coach, as a, as a, um, a leader, you have to be able, you, you have to recognize that the answer is probably within them that you, you oh, don't always. have all the answers. <laughs> it's <same>. always, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's so funny. I, this is hilarious. I, I had a, a strap planning firm hired me, um, several years ago, many years ago. And uh, they had built a big strategy for a big insurance company and they wanted me to come in and do the the org structure. And so, you know, I I came in and they gave me this junior consultant to kind of, you know, he was like my helper. So he's following me around and I go meet with the CEO and, you know, we're sitting there and the CEO says to me, well, um, so just tell me, you know, what's it's going to look like at the end? Like, you know, tell me what what it's going to look like. And I said, well, I don't have any idea what it's going to look like. I said, we have a set of tools and processes that I'm going to take you through and you're going to design it. And he said, oh, no, no, come on. Like, you've been doing this long enough. I mean, you, you know what it's going to look like. And I said, no, I, I really, truly don't know what it's going to look like. And if I did, you shouldn't hire me because what, what has to happen is this has to work for you. It can't be something that comes out of a binder on my shelf. It has to be something that works for you. And together, you know, we've got a process, but together we're going to build it. And the, the CEO was kind of mesmerized. He said, wow, you know, okay. And so he started to trust me. And I think, I think he really felt like I was the first one that had been honest with him. And we left the room and the the junior consultant said to me, he pulled me into like a, you know, a a closed office and just shut the door and said, you can't say that. You can't, you can't say that. And I said, say what? And he said, well, you're going to get in trouble. 
He says, you can't say you don't know. He goes, you never ask a question as a consultant. You never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. He said, you're not allowed to say you don't know. He said, if somebody hears you, you're going to get in trouble. And I looked at him and I just started to laugh. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, you're going to learn a totally different philosophy on that. I said, stick around and you tell me in six months which you like better. And he said, but they're going to fire you. I said, oh, no, they won't. <laughs> and, so, and, and the funny thing was, is that the firm I was working for, that's what they taught their people, is that you were never allowed to say you don't know. You were never allowed to admit that. You couldn't ask a question you hadn't already done the research. For. And I thought, what kind of crap is this? And so when this, the first thing my clients learn about me is that I will always tell you when I don't know. Now, if I have the answer, you're going to hear the answer. But mm -hmm. if I don't know, I mean, I usually know where to get it or how to get it. Um, and and we we pride ourselves on the tools that get the think the best thinking out of the people in the in the client uh, company. But gosh, if if I were to say I knew all the answers, I'd really mm -hmm. be lying. <laughs> but that's what happens. You know, you've seen ninety nine percent of the time. And talk about. Talk about nervous system disruption when you have to come up with an answer. Can you imagine? You Can you imagine? I mean, that poor kid is going to live with a constant yeah. state of stress because oh, he God. thinks he has to know all the answers. Yeah. You know, but but I will say the, the first time I encountered someone, I was in a training class and I remember the woman teaching the class. I'll never forget. It was Scotia Rice. She was teaching the class and I said, well, I don't understand, like, how does this work? And she said, I don't know, it just does. <laughs> and she was someone like I really respected. And I was so taken aback because I thought, what do you mean she doesn't know? Like she didn't even make something up. <laughs> but what I realized as I reflected on it was there was so much power in her ability to say, I don't know. And we'll figure it out or you don't need to know. You know, it was just like, wow. And it, there's so there's so much freedom in being able to say that uh, and so much less stress. It's it's unbelievable. I can I can feel a lighter, lighter being in myself. So yeah. I appreciate that. And um, it's extremely unique. It's extremely powerful. And I think when people adopt that filter, it makes their life easier. It makes the people that they're coaching or consulting's lives easier because then they start to scratch their head on what was I doing in the past that right. people were just giving me answers. Were those all false answers? <laughs> <laughs> well, and if, I mean, if a consultant yeah. comes in your office and ask, acts like they know everything about your business, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how they get to sit, to stay there. Like, I don't know how, I don't know why people don't kick them out. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I, admittedly, when I started in consulting, I was the first undergraduate that Arthur Anderson had ever hired. So I knew exactly nothing. And the worst part was I didn't have an MBA, so I didn't qualify for the training that they give normal consultants. So they threw me in the field and said, go work with clients with no training right out of undergrad. I had no idea what I was doing. So for me to sit there and try to fake it was like, I mean, it was laughable. So the only thing I could do is to what, and I got really, really good at figuring out who knew what's, what was going on in the client and going and talking to them. And I, I mean, I talked to everybody. I did interviews till I was blue, till I understood what was going on. And then I could speak intelligently. 
But without listening for a very long time, I was screwed. I, I did not, I could not say I knew anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's a totally different school of thought. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Um, yeah, that's a that's a topic that we could dive into for hours. One of the things that I'm curious about, and I see the different you know, the different pillars of Jennifer's brand and, and what, you know, what you talk about from a business and a personal level, because that's an important element. Mm -hmm. How do we get a lot of the things you've hit on from a resilience standpoint into the K through 12 education system, or even, <laughs> even in college? Why aren't we learning this stuff earlier on in life to be able to navigate disruption, navigate our lives on a day to day basis? I have long thought that, you know, it's funny when I first started teaching our influence workshop, which is really a series of communication tools aimed at creating dialogues that get real issues on the table and drive learning for both parties. I have long said that I wish I had learned that when I was about five, mm -hmm. because I would be a different person today. I mean, it, it's so powerful. And, um, you know, I, I think someday, I would love to write a children's book that teaches kids how to use those tools. I, I don't know how to do that. You know, I, I certainly, that's not my audience. So <laughs> I'm a little clueless there, but I would love to, I think what you're saying is absolutely 100% accurate. I guess lecture in a, a class at Penn state where they're using my book as a textbook to teach resilience and teach filters and and really help uh, college kids, you know, e equip them with some of these skills. And I wish more would use it that way. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. You know, I've been doing this for years and I always offer to talk to people afterwards and no one ever takes me up on it. So this year, a woman called with a really legitimate question and she said, you know, I went through trauma when I was 16 and it shaped me. And how do I, how do I build resilience now having lived through something really tough and the conversations that we had after that, man, did it teach me how valuable this is for somebody to go through this when they're young? I, mm -hmm. I think you have hit the nail on the head and I don't know the answer. <laughs> that goes back to our previous conversation. I, I... <laughs> But we need to. I mean, you yeah. know, unfortunately, right now, you know, my business, well, fortunately or unfortunately, my business is really focused on senior leaders. But I think I think there's a market for some children's books, maybe a younger version of this stuff. Um, not quite sure how to crack that nut, but it may be the next frontier of where we take this. Yeah, I love that. That's extremely impactful. Jennifer, I'm, I'm so thankful for what you bring to the world, your ability to translate a lot of these topics into things that people can understand and implement and that you know you're bringing that mindset that filter that more people need around being able to say i don't know i think that's extremely impactful and something that's going to shift how companies run themselves now and into the future and i know a lot of people listening in are going to get a lot of impact um one of the final questions we like to ask every guest on the show is Jennifer, what does being connected or connection you know, mean to you today, personally, professionally? Wow. I, and that is, that is an amazing question. I, I think 
Connection is actually a part of my definition of success, um, being connected to others. And I think, you know, the virtual environment that we're living in makes this more challenging, but you can't go through this life alone. Um, connected to me is an enormous contact list of people that when I don't know, I've got people I can call. I've got people I can bounce things off of. Um, I've got people I can bring in as partners that are experts at what they do when I'm not. And I think that network that you build, which I was terrible at that for many, many years. I never, never, I mean, completely underestimated the need to network. But honestly, being connected today is the difference between being promoted or not promoted. And it is for many of my clients. So I think building those connections and building that those networks that we have is probably the one of the single most important things that you can do, not just for your ability to be resilient, just but for your life and for your career and for, you know, anything that you need to know you're not alone and have advocates and build advocates and sponsorship because that's what gets you promoted. Um, those are critical. Absolutely. Jennifer, thanks so much for your time and joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I greatly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for all your questions. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been an honor to be on the show.